Hi, everybody. See a lot of faces here I haven't seen for several years. That's a very nice, uh, very nice surprise, and it's really, really good to be here. Um, in 2012, three days after uh, Mitt Romney lost the election to Barack Obama, I was emceeing an event for David Horowitz down in um, West Palm Beach, and I hadn't planned on saying anything, and about 10 minutes before the show, they asked me if I wanted to do 15 minutes. I said, sure, why not? So I did a speech which was seen by several million people, and during the course of that speech, this is three days after the election in 2012, I said, the next president of the United States is gonna be a Republican. He's not gonna be a politician. He's gonna come from the pop culture. I don't know who it's gonna be, but whoever it is, it's gonna be somebody who knows how to manipulate a television audience. It's gonna be somebody who knows the media. That's the only way we'll be able to win, and I predicted this at least three years before Donald Trump made his announcement. Now, I'm not doing that to show off. I'm doing that because everybody wants to know what's going to happen next because everybody knows the world is going to hell. And I do know what's going to happen next. Now, I can tell you what's going to happen next in about 10 minutes, but for me to prove to you what's going to happen next can take me a little bit longer, so here we go. I will make you one promise before I start, uh, and that's simply this. When you walk out of here, you're going to feel better than you did when you walked in, but, but between now and then, you're going to feel a lot worse. A couple years ago, a couple of historians and sociologists wrote a remarkable book called The Fourth Turning, uh, William Strauss and Nick Howe. These two gentlemen were extraordinarily uh, open-minded individuals, and they took a look at Western history, Western civilization, and they looked at it through an entirely new set of eyes, and what they discovered was a remarkably consistent pattern to human civilization. And this pattern took place on almost exactly an 80-year cycle, almost precisely. Turns out that this 80-year cycle had been recognized for many thousands of years. The ancient Greeks talked about it. The ancient Romans believed that history happened in an 80-year cycle. They called that period of time the seculum, which is where we get our word secular from. They believed that human events cycle every 80 years because the, the human lifespan is 80 years. Certainly, the average lifespan has increased phenomenally since since biblical times or ancient Greek times, but the typical longest age that most people live has consistently been around 80 years. And that turns out that these two historians and psychologists looked at this 80-year cycle with a great deal of precision and were able to put pins into actual events that happened in history to such a high degree of precision that I am ultimately absolutely convinced that these two guys are correct. So let me tell you what they found about this pattern. First thing that these two guys said was that there are three different ways of thinking about time. Primitive people think about time as chaotic. They don't have a written history. Something happened, something else happened. There was this war with the people who lived in the mountain tribes, and then somebody fell into a canal, and then something else happened. They don't have a written history, so, so time for them is very chaotic. It's very unassembled. Second way to think about time is linear. Linear time, that is how Western man thinks about time. And these two authors said no one in the history of the world has ever thought more linearly about time than the American people. We are profoundly linear in our thinking. And here's where the good news is. We are watching everything going to hell out there. And if time is linear, then we are going from someplace good to someplace bad. The country's heading into the, into the river. There's nothing we can do about it. And after that, it's over. That's a linear way of looking at what we're going through right now. But what these guys found out was that history doesn't work that way. History isn't chaotic, and history isn't linear. History is the third way about thinking about time, and that is cyclical. It is a cyclical process. It is a cycle. And so, if you think about time as cycle, 
then we are not just heading for hell, we're heading for hell again. And our country has been, th our country has been through this cycle seven times already. Let me give you a couple of examples that you might find kind of interesting. I'm simplifying enormously, but if you really have a hard time believing about this, think about this. These cycles begin and end with an existential crisis. It can't be a bad day, it can't be a war, it can't be a disease. It has to be something that is a threat to the civilization. So, is there any evidence for this 80-year uh, cycle? Well, it's turned out that it actually is. The American independence was declared on 1776, but the Revolutionary War was fought in the 1780s. Add 80 years to 1780, and you get the 1860s, which is the US Civil War. Add 80 years to the 1860s, you get the 1940s, which is World War II. Add 80 years to the 1940s, and you get the 2020s. Not only were they able to determine that this 80-year cycle is consistent throughout history, they were to go even further with this. They're able to say that every 80 years, there are four quarters to these 80-year cycles in exactly the same way as there are four seasons in the year and that these cycles within the cycle correspond to the seasons. There is a generation, a 20-year generation, that is the generation of spring and childhood and growth. 20 years later, there's a second generation. This is the generation of growing older and, and being in your prime. Third generation is the age of maturity and wisdom. Fourth generation is the age of decline and despair. And the fourth turning represents the fact that this society of ours is going through this 80-year cycle again. And we are now going from the third phase of this cycle, which is called the falling apart. And we are heading into the fourth phase of the cycle, which is the crisis. And if anybody doesn't see that happening, well, certainly I don't have to explain that to you. We have watched things fall apart for 20 years, and now we're at the point we are no longer watching things fall apart. Now we are in the beginning of the actual crisis. And we've gotten through all of these crises before, and we'll get through this one too. But here's where this gets really interesting, because when you really get down to it, the proof that these guys are correct is in the biology. So what do I mean by that? Well. Let's just take a look at the theory. If each of these 80-year cycle is defined by an external existential crisis, it's kind of convenient, isn't it? That just 80 years, every cycle just kind of happens to have a crisis show up at the right moment? That doesn't make any sense. But that's not what it is, you see. These crises are not something that happened externally. The crises are not random, the crises are not accidental, and the crises are not external. The crises that we face every year as humans, not just as Americans, are a result of the changes in our biology that occur from a crisis situation to a peaceful situation. Our biology actually changes. So the crisis is generated by the changes in our culture that come as a result of prosperity. That's how the wheel goes around. That's why I believe there's really something to this. So let's talk for a minute about the biology. Quick little zoological uh, knowledge test. This is a bright looking crowd. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this. Just knee jerk reaction questions for you. So just shout it out if you know the answer. So let's see how humans compare to other animals. What is the fastest land animal? Okay, what's the highest flying animal? Anybody know? It's a hawk, it's a form of the hawk. Uh, what's the deepest diving animal? Sperm whale? What animal lives in the coldest environment? Polar bear, penguin? Good. Which animal lives in the hottest environment? Sure. 
Um, uh, just, just, just two more. Which creature, which creature is the most violent if you put a bunch of them in an enclosed space? Man. Which, which species is the least violent if you put a bunch of them in a closed space? Manatees. Yeah. Well, you're wrong on all of those. The, the correct answer to all of those questions is humans. Humans are the fastest land animal. Humans are the fastest, are the highest flying animal. Humans dive deeper than any other animal. Humans live in colder environments than any other animal. Humans live in hotter environments than any other animal. Humans live, are the most violent in small groups, and humans are also the least violent in small groups. When I was in college, when you used to actually get an education, I was in one of these massive rooms with five, 600 students in it. Somebody brought up something about how terrible people are, you know, killer apes and all we do is murder each other. And the sociology professor said, if you were to take 500 animals of any other species, pack them in shoulder to shoulder the way all of you are right now, any other species, in one hour, there'd be one of them alive and the floor would be covered with blood. <laughs> Not only are we the most adaptable species, we are also the most remarkable omnivores. There is nothing that human beings do not eat. <laughs> nothing. Koala bears eat exclusively eucalyptus leaves and that's all they eat. Humans eat everything. Bugs, fungus, insects, birds, fish, anything, anything. Plants, you name it, we eat it. So what I'm getting at here is that human beings are by far, by far, the most adaptable species, not only in the world today, but that has ever existed on this planet. We can adapt to anything. That's why we're as successful we are as we are. What's especially fascinating about this from a psychological point of view and from a historical point of view and a cultural point of view is not only are we capable of adapting physically to these environments, we also automatically change our psychology dependent on the environment that we find ourselves in. Which brings us to another interesting little theory called RK theory. Biologists were taking a look at how much life a particular environment could support. What is the carrying capacity of an environment? That environment could be 100 acres, could be 100 miles, could be a continent, doesn't matter. How do you determine how many animals will the land support? Well, it turns out that there are a number of factors, but two of them come down to this. One of them comes down to what is the ambient food supply for the animals, and the other one is what is the reproductive rate of these animals. Stay with me on this, because this is really, really, really important. Nature provides mammals with two different survival strategies, and they are hardwired into the species. So let's take a couple of extreme examples. If you have an abundant food supply, the most successful reproductive strategy is the R strategy, R for reproduction. What that means is, is if there is an endless food supply, if food is readily available, it's in the interest of that species to make as many children as possible and not worry about the quality of the children because there is so much food that you don't breed a better, more competitive rabbit because there's no reason to do so. The way you make more rabbits when there's enough food is make as many rabbits as possible. You don't have to train a rabbit to eat alfalfa. You just make as many of them as you possibly can. That is called the R strategy for survival. The alternative to this is when you find an environment where food is scarce, then the tables completely invert. Now you're with the K strategy. And what the K strategy is, instead of rabbits, wolves would be a great example. So if you have a pack of wolves up in the mountains there, especially during winter, there's not a whole lot of food, you can have 10,000 wolf babies and they're all gonna starve. When food is scarce, the strategy goes from make as many children as you can to make as high 
quality children as you can because they're going to need the skills necessary in order to survive in that much tougher environment. So one environment is don't care about the kids, make as many as you can, doesn't matter how well trained they are, just let them go off in the world, they'll make as many kids as they want to. Rabbits are not territorial. Rabbits don't say, hey, there's another group of rabbits coming over the hill, we'd better arm up. Rabbits just say, we don't have to worry about more rabbits, we'll just move over, there's all the food we could possibly eat. Let me know if any of this sounds familiar to you when it comes to things like immigration and so on in this country. Let me know if that sounds familiar to you. Now, on the other hand, K-type species like wolves have very, very clearly defined rules of social behavior, they have rules of norm, they have rules of warfare, they are used to being able to control themselves because if they don't, they will eat each other because they've got big, big nasty teeth and those sharp claws. So if you think about it, conservative political philosophy is essentially the wolf philosophy, it's the K philosophy. We want to create quality children who can compete in an environment and because we're competitors, we're not afraid of things like, we don't need safe spaces, we don't need all kinds of equalizing things. We say play is where you learn whether you're good at something or bad at something. We don't need to be protected from losing a baseball game. We understand that if we lose a baseball game, that's a learning experience, makes me a better baseball player, I'm a tougher wolf, and we'll get them next time. But on the other hand, if you don't believe in that theory, if you're a reproductive-based theory, you want to protect the rabbits. Don't stress them out. Don't do anything to them. What's happening in America is, as we become more and more abundant of a society, more and more of our population is turning from competitive K-type strategy to non-competitive reproductive-type strategy. We don't care about the quality of the kids. We're not much interested in the kids, frankly. What could possibly go wrong? There's going to always be food, there's going to always be electricity, there's going to always be an internet, there's going to always be a safe space, there's always going to be somebody to call on 911. It is the philosophy of rabbits that do not face predators or threats. And that is the biology change that happens in people as we get further and further away from that last crisis. Now, I'm a late baby boomer, I was born in 59. My father was greatest generation. He experienced the last great crisis we had, which was World War II. World War I, by the way, was a terrible thing, but it was not an existential threat to the country. World War II was. The Civil War was. The War of Independence was. So I am, fortunately, born in that golden age where I did not have to live through the crisis, but I had direct contact with the people who did, namely my mom and dad. So I respect and understand the sacrifices they made, but I didn't have to deal with any of the conflicts. That's why my generation is the space age generation. That's why my generation, which grew up as the result of victory in the last crisis, believed and still believe that we could be on Mars by 1975, that nuclear power plants would allow us to desalinate water, pump it up into the Mojave, and we could grow rice and cotton in the Mojave Desert. There's nothing we couldn't do. The future belongs entirely to us, and people like us in that attitude put men on the moon 50 years ago with slide rules, did the math in their heads. That's what that first generation is about. The second generation removed from the last crisis would be Gen X or Gen Y, more or less together. They did not have direct contact with the, with the crisis generation, but they did have them as grandparents. So they had some kind of relationship to them. Then you get to the next generation further removed, that would be Gen Zs and the Millennials, and they have no contact whatsoever 
with the last crisis generation. They don't believe that a crisis has ever happened. They don't care about history because there's been no consequences to caring about history. They simply don't get it and they don't want to get it. And that's what we're seeing out there now. The further we get away from the last crisis, the worse things become. And if you want to understand this very simple cycle of history, best I ever heard, I wish I wrote this myself, but it's very simple, listen carefully. Strong men make good times. Good times make weak men. Weak men make bad times. Bad times make strong men. And around and around and around and around we go. So we are now at a point where our biology is changing. Testosterone levels are going down precipitously among men. Testosterone levels are rising among women. Estrogen levels in men are rising. Estrogen levels in women are falling. And if you need one more little nail in the coffin of this being biologically true, let me give you one of the most remarkable stories, true stories that ever existed. It's about an experiment that was done in 1968. It was called Universe 25. There was a researcher named John Calhoun. He was a behavioralist. And he had an interesting idea. He wanted to know if it was possible to create a permanent utopia for people. And since people are a little tough to put in a, in a, in a particular lab cage and not let them out for several generations, he decided if he could make, oh, thank you so much. That's so nice of you. Thank you very much. Hey, bravo. Well done. Thank you. My arm is free again. My tools are free. So, so he couldn't use humans, so he, so he used something he could use. So what he did was he created this experiment that eventually got to be known as um, Universe 25. And the reason he named it Universe 25 was it was his 25th attempt to create a mouse utopia. That's what he tried to do. He took an area not much, lar not much smaller, really, than this room, a big area. And he filled it with everything that, a mice, that mice could possibly want. He made sure there was straw everywhere, exercise wheels, water was available all the time and constantly changed. All the food they could want behind all the wood chips were little tunnels that led to 260 separate little mice apartments that were completely enclosed that would hold a family of 15 mice. He made a mouse utopia. He estimated that this mouse utopia could hold probably 6,000 individuals when it was fully, fully, fully staffed, at which point it'd be time to expand. Great news. He was so serious about this, he went to the National Institute of Mental Health and he got eight perfectly healthy breeding pairs of mice. So 16 mice went into this thing designed to hold 6,000 people and the mice got in there and the mice had a blast. <laughs> they just loved it. No predators no worries, all the food they could want. All of these mice went off, found their own little apartments, raised their families. Within a short period of time, he got the mouse population up to around 1,600 or so. Sorry, 600, somewhere around there. And then, right around there, he realized something was happening. The behavior of the mice was changing. The mice, the male mice, no longer had to defend territory because there was all the territory they could possibly need. So they stopped forming these social cohesion bonds among other males that would allow them to defend their territory as a group and that meant that the males started to attack each other. The females no longer had to worry about feeding their young or protecting their young and after two or three generations, the females stopped caring for their young. In some cases, they ate them. And the population of the mouse utopia which was designed to hold 6,000, you would think that if you created endless food supply and perfect conditions for mouse, mice, your problem would be an overpopulation explosion at 30,000 mice, right? What could go wrong? 
But when you give them nothing but food, nothing but comfort, take away the predators, the population, which was going to hold 6,000, topped out at 1,800. And by that point, the mice had gone completely psychotic. The male mice, the male mice were having sex with whoever they ran into, including other male mice. The females no longer had any care for their young whatsoever. The population rate, the rate of reproduction fell to zero. And what's even more interesting is a small group of mice selected themselves to climb way up the very top of this thing. This thing had all these beautiful walls. A group of, of mice went up to the very top and they lived completely isolated from the rest of the mice. Didn't interact with them at all. All they did was sleep, eat, and groom themselves. Calhoun called them the beautiful ones because their coats were so immaculate. They didn't go down and fight, they didn't argue, didn't do anything, didn't get down in the mud, didn't worry about any of that. They just sat there and essentially looked at themselves on Instagram and just <laughs> really enjoyed the sight of their own reflection. So after 1800 was a peak population, by the time this thing was over, the entire grounds of this utopia, which had plenty of unused apartments, wasn't an overpopulation problem, plenty of unused space, just considered of nothing but blood and, and, and mouse skeletons, and they died off to a mouse. Every single one of them died because they no longer reproduced. They lost the will to live. They lost the will to live because there was no conflict, because there was no stress, because there was no objective, because there was no goal, there was no reason for them to be alive. Let me know if any of this sounds familiar to you. <laughs> it's not a pleasant thought, but it's what drives this cycle, and I am 100% convinced of it, folks. All animals, but us especially, we are not made for abundance. We're made for stress. That's what we're designed for. That's why we're here. If we were designed for abundance, then we'd all be extinct a long time ago. We're designed for stress. We're worry machines. And we will worry our way up to our limit of worrying, depending on how great the threat is. Those mechanisms that kept us alive, those worry mechanisms, what's going to happen if? Back in the old days, that used to be, what's going to happen if somebody doesn't stay awake tonight and watch the fire and a leopard comes in? That's what we used to worry about, and that's what we used to be afraid about. But when there aren't any leopards anymore, now we say, what would happen if my, my, my order from Starbucks is soy latte instead of almond milk? And, and, and we have the same reaction as we would if a leopard walked in the room when we don't get what we thought we were going to get. We storm around, we hyperventilate, we're in our fight or flee environment, we worry to the limit of our environment, and the better we make the environment, the more worrying we do about lesser and lesser and lesser things. This generation, Gen Z, by the way, who didn't ask to be educated this way, and they didn't ask to be raised this way either. The progressives in their infinite ability to not see anything that's very clear decided that the best way to make confident, happy humans is to make sure that they never get stressed at all. That's what the self-esteem movement was about. First, we give you the self-esteem, and then you'll go out and do the achievements. Doesn't work that way. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. When I played Little League Baseball my first year, we lost 10 games in a row. And it wasn't fun to lose 10 games in a row. Next year, we won all 10. They moved me from right field to first base. But I was saying, that's a correlation. Just saying it's but the lessons I had to learn about failure, I learned as a 10-year-old boy with the stakes being a Little League baseball game. I didn't have to learn about failure 
while I'm shoplifting or while I'm doing some other incredible things. I'm not a college 24 years old. Somebody says something I disagree with, I burst into tears and have to go into a, a safe space. <laughs> Our brains, our amygdala, are calibrated for risk. The more risk we experience, the less upset we get about small risks. True story from 10 years ago. They locked down an entire elementary school because one boy came to school one day with a Pop-Tart and he chewed a corner of it off so that it was in the general shape of a 45 automatic. And I mean the general shape. He chewed his Pop-Tart into a toy gun, locked the school down, helicopters there, police teams, SWAT teams, all of it. Everybody got hysterical at the school. You know who don't get people, you know who don't, doesn't get hysterical about Pop-Tarts that are chewed in the shape of 45s? Members of SEAL Team 6 don't get hypoventilated about a Pop-Tart that looks like a gun because guys with real guns are shooting at them all the time. They know how to calibrate risk. They don't get excited or upset about little things because they are exposed to real risks. The more we protect these children and isolate them from harmful thoughts or stress or environment or conflict, the more we do that, the weaker they get. And we have been doing this for two, three generations now. And so we look out there and we see, well, we see what we see. So that's why I think this is going to happen. Now, the big question, of course, is the question of the night is, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Well, I got an answer for that, too, fortunately, because I've been doing a lot of thinking since we all saw each other last. What's the next crisis going to be and what can we do about it? Well, first thing I can do is I can tell you what it's not going to be. Here's something that all these previous crises had in common. In the 1780s, or, or a time leading up to the Revolutionary War, people knew for 20 years that sooner or later we're going to be at war with Great Britain. That didn't come as a surprise, we knew it. In the 1860s, for 20 years previously, we knew there was going to be a fight about slavery. We knew it was coming, tried to avoid it, couldn't do anything about it, and it came. In the 1940s, we watched the Japanese build their fleets. We watched Hitler build his fleets in the 30s and so on. We said something bad is going to happen. We can see it coming, but we didn't do anything about it because we just didn't know. So what, if, we, if we take this theory as true, what is it that we can see coming? Because that's the one thing that these crises have. They're obvious. There's not a, it's not a surprise, it's obvious. So that's telling me, first of all, that the crisis we're going to face next is not going to be a war. It's not going to be America versus Russia. It's not going to be America versus China. It's not going to be nuclear missiles. We have prepared ourselves beautifully for the last crisis. And it's not going to be a civil war either. In the civil war, in the actual civil war, the opinion on slavery was matched by your geographical location. In other words, there was the Mason-Dixon line. If you were an abolitionist, you lived in the North. If you believed in slavery, you lived in the South. That's what the Southern economy was based on. Sure enough, when the war started, some people crossed the border, but by and large, the people that lived together in the South had the same opinion on slavery, and the people who lived in the North had the same opinion on slavery. And so you could actually have a war there because the two sides were on different sides of a line. Can't have a civil war in this country. Anybody know offhand how many, what percentage Donald Trump carried in, in California in, in last election? 30%. 30%? Okay, so that means, it's, that means that three out of 10 people in the bluest state in the union, three out of the 10 people we see are on the other side of the war. It just, it's not gonna happen, it's impossible. And there's also something I call the Rubik's Cube effect. We can talk about these damn Democrats and everything they do, and they are damned, and they, they are a complete, complete ruin of our society, but, 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 you can find yourself at a football game 
and you will be sitting next to somebody if it's the Packers and the Bears, and you can be sitting next to somebody who's the biggest liberal in the world, and you're both Packers fans, and you look across the way, and there are conservatives and liberals over there, and they're both Bear fans, and you hate those goddamn Bear fans, go Packers, and so it doesn't, it's just not going to happen. You cannot have a war when people are all in the same territory together. A war has to have a boundary, and there is no boundary for a civil war in this country. So what can we see? Well, here's what I think is going to be, folks. The next existential crisis facing this country, we're already in the beginning of it, is going to be very simple. It is going to be a battle. It's going to be a battle between the lawless and the law-abiding. That's what it's going to be. It's going to happen all around the world, but it's going to happen here in America because that's what I see everywhere. You cannot pick a better example, by the way, than Hamas versus Israel. That's as obvious as it gets. It's going to be a struggle that is going to be an existential struggle for this country and it's going to be between people who obey the law and people who don't. Which means to me that this war is going to be fought on three fronts. And when I say war, I don't necessarily mean shooting for, in fact, I mean almost certainly not mostly a shooting war. Three fronts. Here's the first front. The first front that we're going to face with this law of war, of, of lawful and law-abiding, are going to be in America's cities. America's cities for the last 50 years have been a disgrace. They've been run by Democrats for 80 years, 100 years, 120 years, 140 years in the case of Atlanta. All of these murder pits, 8,000 Americans murdering each other every year in these democratically run cities. If you take the large cities out of America's murder rate, we have a lower murder rate than Belgium. We have a lower murder rate than Switzerland. Now, it's our fault too because we say, oh, it's a democratic problem. Well, they caused it, they govern it, but it's our country, it's all America. We've watched 8,000 Americans murder each other every year for five decades now, and we haven't done a thing about it. The Republicans haven't done anything about it either. It's a disgrace. But the situation in those cities now is so toxic that it is a war zone, has been a war zone for quite a long time. We've been okay with it because it hasn't spread to us yet, but that's about to change. I'm not talking about Baltimore. Baltimore is, is a tragedy that beggars description. If you look at these neighborhoods now that are completely bombed out, shuttered up neighborhoods, in the 1950s and 60s, these were beautifully maintained houses that were owned by working class people, white and black living next to each other. They had flower gardens. They all went to the same schools. They had open street parties. They had barbecues. Everybody got along just fine. 10 years ago or something like that, the Mark Twain Library in Baltimore, I think it was Baltimore, but it might have been Detroit, as if there's a difference. <laughs> they finally closed it, and the reason they closed it was because the government, city government, had allocated something like $600,000 to doing repairs on the roof on this library that had been there for 100 years or something. And the repair money didn't go to the library, it went into the pockets of the corrupt politicians. So the roof caved in on the library, and this beautiful library with all these incredible carved wooden fixtures was completely gutted. People went in there and they pulled the wires out of the wall because you can sell the copper to recycling plants, maybe get your five bucks for your speedball for the day. They took light fixtures out of there, they took brass doorknobs, they took wood things, they took nails. You know what they didn't take out of the library? The books. They didn't take the books. The books rotted in the water. The only thing that wasn't stolen from the library were the books. Think about that for a second. That used to be a thriving community, and it's not anymore, it's a, it's a murder pit, and we all know it. Now, as I said, we were all right with that as long as it didn't come into our neighborhood. But all we have to do is look at San Francisco and New York and see that these cities are very rapidly becoming unlivable. 
There was a reason why we had cities. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, cities took place on either crossroads or on the coasts because you wanted trade to happen there. During the Industrial Revolution, people moved from the countryside, from agrarian societies, into the cities because factories need large numbers of people close together, and one factory has to feed another. So this entire gigantic urban movement that happened at the peak of the Industrial Revolution isn't necessary anymore. We don't need cities anymore. The people who live in cities today, which is half the country, live in cities because they like living in cities. And when there's no economic reason to live in a city, only reason you live in a city is because you like it. When the situation in that city deteriorates to the point where you don't like it, there's no reason to stay. And what that means is, is that all of that toxicity, all of that, uh, on the upper end, all of that, uh, just this complete density of lack of understanding, is we're gonna have half of the country is going to be, is going to be dispossessed. Half of the country are gonna be refugees in our own country. They're gonna leave those cities in large numbers and they're gonna come out to where we live. And we're gonna to have to deal with that. Now, if you would ask me if I would rather deal with going ashore on the first wave in Iwo Jima versus having to deal with 10 Karens a day, no offense Karen, I will take the Karens. But that is the source of one of the three fronts that we're gonna have. These, these, not only just the violent criminals, but the people with the city attitudes are going to go out of the cities. They're gonna take their attitudes with them and we gotta be prepared to deal with that. But that, but that toxicity in the cities is going to spread and it's already happening. Fisherman's Wharf in San, Diego, in San Francisco is closed. It doesn't exist anymore, it's gone. It doesn't exist anymore because the stores can't stay open. The stores can't stay open because the city attorney has said that we will not prosecute shoplifters of any color. It is enforced from the top down by these forces of the beautiful people, the little beautiful mice that live up there and groom themselves, like Mr. Governor, uh, Governor Haircut, $800 haircut, the guy who governs this state, he's one of those people, grooms himself, looks fantastic, doesn't give a damn about what's going on. Gavin Newsom presided over the destruction of one of the most beautiful cities in America, arguably the world, into a place where they had an app on your iPhone so that you could avoid areas of extreme concentrations of needles and human waste. People are just plain going to the bathroom in the middle of the street, they're taking baths in public on, uh, with open fire hydrants in San Francisco. Those cities are over. They're done. New York the same way. New York is nothing but a group of rioters now. And all of these democratic politicians that they elect are a result of us getting further and further and further away from the sensible policies, policies of people like Rudy Giuliani. So the cities, that's front number one. Second front is going to be the border and not just the actual border. Tens of millions of combat-aged single males are in this country now, and tens of thousands come every single day. And they are not here to help us build the vision of the future. I'm not entirely sure what they're here for, but I know they're not here for America. That is going to be a front that we're gonna to have to face. All of that lawlessness and so on, the gang members, all of it, we're gonna to have to deal with them. We're gonna to have to deal with them. It's gonna be mostly confined to southern border states, but it's spreading all around the country. One of the nice things about these uh, foreign gang cartels is they're kind enough to put on a uniform for us. The face tattoos and all the rest of it, there's no mistaking those guys, we know what they look like, that's gonna make it easier for us. But that gigantic influx of non-Americans who have no desire to be Americans, 
is going to be the second front that we face. That's not immigration, by the way. My beautiful wife, Natasha, is immigration. She came here because she wanted to be. She became a US citizen last year. It took us six years and a ton of money, and she is as American as I am, and she wants to be here. Those people don't, and that's gonna be a problem. Good for you, by the way. <laughs> Now, if you're a progressive watching this, you're going to say, oh, I got it, Bill. Typical Republican racist. You pick the black people in the cities, and you pick the Hispanic people on the border, so that must be it. But our major threat, I think, is not going to be the cities, and it's not going to be the border. Our major threat that we're going to deal with is going to be in the suburbs. And our threat is going to come from young, white, liberal, adult children. You cannot believe how damaged this generation is. You have no idea. You think you do, but you don't. Everything you ever thought about conflict, we think, oh, we're going to be in a war, we're going to need guns, we're going to need aircraft carriers. No, 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 it's not going to be like that at all. You know what the most effective weapon the good guys have had developed? It is the equivalent of a fleet of aircraft carriers in World War II. You know what, you know what that is that we have on our side now? It's police body cams. Police body cams are damn near a nuclear weapon in this fight that's coming up. Because not only do you see how toxic these people are and how unbelievably broken they are, but people who had a negative opinion about police watch what these people go through on a daily basis and say, I was wrong about them. I couldn't do this job. For, you couldn't pay me enough money to do this job for a day. It's not possible. To give you some idea of just exactly how horrible things have become out there, there's an entire generation now that looks at law, forget politics, looks at the idea of law as something kind of for grandma or great grandma. When they get pulled over, I don't think I've seen two of, uh, I've seen hundreds of these body cam videos. Maybe 10 or 20% of those have a driver's license. When the policemen say, can you show me your driver's license? I don't have one. You mean it expired? No, I just didn't get one. It's like asking them to show us your field and stream subscription. That's, what they, that's, how they, that's how seriously they take it. And unfortunately for us, and again, and it needs to be said, these Gen Z kids didn't raise themselves, but when you are now 24 years old and never had to face consequences for anything in your life, what you will see again and again and again and again and again with these body cam footages is the same exact thing. They are drunk driving, they knocked over a pole, crashed into somebody's car. Good evening, ma'am, how are you? I'm fine, what can I do for you? Can I see your driver's license, proof of insurance, registration, please? No. Ma'am, I'm sorry, I need to see your proof of insurance, driver's license, registration. No, I'm not showing it to you, I wanna to talk to my lawyer. Well, in that case, get out the bat phone and, and, and Mr. Jacoby and Myers will parachute directly onto your crime scene and, and solve this for you right away. I cannot tell you the number of people who are 25, 30 years old who when confronted with the police refuse to obey or conform in any way until they talk to their mommy or their daddy. And I'm not exaggerating when I say those words. I wanna to talk to my mommy. No ma'am, we're not gonna to talk to you. How old are you? I'm 23. You're an adult. Face the consequences of an adult. Get out of the car. I'll get out of the car if you let me talk to my mom. Ma'am, this isn't a request. We're not negotiating here. You need to get out of the car. No, I'm not going to do it. Not until my lawyer gets here. I want to speak to your supervisor. I know my rights. I didn't do anything. I have seen hundreds, hundreds of these people who have, been, who have refused to obey lawful commands from police officer. And the police, the, you have no idea how, how these policemen, the, the amount of, 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 of 
tolerance that they have and the amount of kindness, it's, it's unbelievable. They, will, they warn them far too many times. I've seen them warn somebody 18 times to get off the property because they're being trespassed. And on the 19th time, they arrested this person, and this person immediately started howling, I didn't do anything wrong, what am I being arrested for? What they mean is, I didn't assault anybody. I just didn't follow the rules. They can't comprehend that that's somehow wrong. It's not even entering their head. It's like a magazine subscription. None of them have driver's licenses. None of them have insurance. Here's a registration that's four years expired. You're just driving around? Yeah, why not? And every single one of them, when they get arrested and consequences are met, they'll say the same thing. I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. Why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to me? You see, what, what happens is first you need a policeman, and then you need a psychologist, and for many of them, after the psychologist, you need an exorcist, because they will get in the backseat of that car, 27 years old, crying, kicking, cr kicking, screaming, trying to knock the rear windows out of the car with their feet. They are having the same kind of meltdown that those exact same people had when they were four years old, in the toy store, not getting the toy they wanted until their parents gave in, and they're doing it, and they are fully, aggro fully adult people, and they have the emotional maturity of four-year-olds. And folks, that's not something that you can fix. I wish it was, but it's not. If you don't get the basics of your personality in place by four years, it's not coming. It's not coming. Jordan Peterson said that if you take any group of children, you might have 10% of them, 10, maybe 20% of them, with antisocial tendencies. Almost all of them will be socialized out of these antisocial tendencies. But if they're not socialized out of it by age four, they're going to be criminals for life. And these adult children are never, ever, ever going to grow up. They just don't have the neurons for it. That's where our real crisis is going to be. We're going to be facing a nation of children who not only don't respect the law, not only don't even understand the law, they just don't believe that it exists. And when you arrest them, when you finally put them in cuffs and they realize they can't bargain their way out of this, you're under arrest. You have to get out of the car. I'll get out of the car if you let me call my mom. You're in handcuffs. So I'll get in the car now. I'll get in the car if you take the handcuffs off. It's not a negotiation. When they finally, finally, finally realize what's happening to them, universally they say, what's going on? What's going on? Are you nuts? What the F is going on? Are you crazy? What are you doing? What's wrong with you? They can't process it. They cannot process they did something wrong. They just don't have it, and they never will. So that's what we're going to be facing. We're going to be facing lawlessness, and we're going to be facing it as law-abiding people. Now, good news and bad news to close. If it was just a simple question of the state not enforcing the law, then we would do what we always do, and that is the citizens would enforce the law. But we've got a much bigger problem than that now. The coercive power of the state is on the side of the lawless. In California, if somebody comes through my window at 4 o'clock in the morning and I shoot that person, then they are likely to get a settlement from me and I'm likely to go to jail. The state of California will use the power of the state to prosecute the law-abiding person and let the non-law-abiding lawless person go because it's in their political interest of the pretty mice to do so. That's our biggest problem. How do we fight a government that is dedicated to enforcing state lawlessness? That's going to be the tough nut to crack. But we have sailed this ship of ours We've sailed this country of ours into storms like this at least four times before. And not only have we come through it every time, we've come through it a better place. 
Every time the wheel goes around, we actually go up a little bit. You know, even just a couple 1800s, early 1800s, uh, an English visitor to New York was walking down the streets and public spitting on the sidewalks from chewing tobacco was so common that this guy wrote back and he said, the thing about New York is the streets look like they're paved with oysters. Yeah, it's kind of gross, huh? Kicking dogs used to be just something that you did. Laughing at people with broken bones in a circus was something that was just real common. Every time that wheel goes around, we move up a little bit. We're not facing a war, we're not facing destruction, we're not facing the end. We are facing a cyclical burning away of all of this dead brush that happens in nature all the time. You have to burn that brush away that returns to the ground as fertilizer. The trees grow bigger and stronger every year and that's what we're gonna have to do. One of my members in one of the conversations I had summed this whole thing up, what our challenge is gonna be. Our challenge is gonna be, we're gonna to have to learn how to be tough enough to bring down the hammer of the law on everybody equally. We're gonna to have to be tough enough to enforce the law. That's our challenge, that's what we're gonna to have to do. So here's the good news. For those of you who think that everything's ruined and gone, I will present you with a single example of a tale I know something about. In World War II, there's a very successful fighter, made in Burbank, by the way, called the P-38 Lightning. Twin-engine fighter, twin-tailed fighter, very successful, scared the living daylights out of the Japanese and the Germans. They called it the fork-tailed devil. There are very few of those around today. Several years ago, about 10 years ago now, I want to say, a group of aviation historians took a look at the records for P-38s during the war and pretty much have a conclusion to what happened to every single one of the thousands of these planes that was built discovered that one of these aircraft had to set down in Greenland, out in the middle of the tundra. Pilot survived, ditched it, survived, picked him up, put him in a jeep, drove away, and they forgot about the airplane, just forgot about it. So these guys went out to this location, and what they found was something like seven or eight feet of ice there. They started digging into the ice, and sure enough, underneath that ice was a completely crushed, fully intact P-38 Lightning. Let's, for the sake of it, say that the name of that airplane, because they used to name airplanes before, that became, uh, you know, insensitive. Let's just say for the sake of it that that plane was called Molly when they ditched it. So they found this skeleton, this crushed skeleton of a P-38. Nothing about that airplane was flyable, nothing. What they did was they put it on a truck, brought it back to America, put it in a garage, and then through 10 years of love and dedication and effort and attention to detail, they took every single one of those pieces of corroded aluminum skin, drilled out the rivets, took it out, cut a new piece of aluminum exactly in the same shape, put all of the rivets in exactly the right place, reconstructed all of the struts, reconstructed all of the braces, all of the ribs, did all of that stuff, and they rebuilt that airplane rivet by rivet until finally, you can look this up if you want to, they finally unveiled it and they renamed it Glacier Girl. Glacier Girl came out of that restoration looking like it was built that morning. It is immaculate. It is a brand new P-38 that was originally manufactured in 19, probably 39, 40. So the question I have for you is, is Glacier Girl the same airplane that was ditched in Greenland? Is it? There's not a single part of it, not one, that I'm aware of. The tires are useless, the electronics, the wires were corroded, the plexiglass was shattered. This brand new P-38 out there, Glacier Girl, is Glacier Girl Molly, is it the same airplane? No, it's not, it's not the same airplane. But are you the same person you were 15 years ago? No. Not just psychologically, physically. 
Every cell in your body regenerates probably every seven years or so. Everybody in this room is not the person that they were seven years ago. You're completely made out of new stuff, but you're the same person. So the question isn't really, is Glacier Girl Molly? That's not really the issue, because Glacier Girl damn sure is a P-38 Lightning. There's no question about that. That's what's happening to our country, and that's what's going to happen too. It's going to come out on the other end, completely different and exactly the same, but better. Because now, Glacier Girl has GPS navigation, and they have all kinds of super sort of advanced sort of safety features, anti-collision devices that they put in because they want to. It's better than it was when they made it. And not only that, they also make jets that are a little more advanced than P-38s this time around. So yes, everything's going to hell, yes. Everything's going to hell. Everything that we love is being destroyed right in front of our eyes. We're watching it happen. It's going to continue to happen. It's going to get worse. Just think about that airplane underneath the ice that is just corroding away until there's nothing but rust and pieces of rubber and nothing there left but the design. The design is still there. And the design will always be there. And so, when we come out of this crisis on the other side, we'll build her back up again. We use the same blueprint, we use the same design, we'll make the same country we live in now, but we'll make it out of better parts, and it's gonna go higher and faster and further than it did before, and that's gonna last us for a good 20 years, then 40, 60 years after that, it's gonna get a little rough, 80 years after that, it's gonna be right where we are tonight, and that's just the way it goes. Thanks very much for having me. In. <laughs>